And now these people you've invested in. My daughter is 10. Who's preaching into her in the next 10 years? She's going to be a young adult. Like we've got these short spans. And all we're looking at sometimes as pastors or, you know, leadership, we're looking at, oh, that's just a kid. Oh, that's just a kid. That's just like, you know, it's like, uh, almost like their life isn't worth it. But the, it is. That's the future of the church. And if these, if we have a crisis with our youth, we're losing the church. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Jason, I have to say, today, out of all the guests we've had on while I've been with you on the show, this is one that is nearest and dearest to my heart. And Miranda, she's incredible, and she's with us today on the podcast. Oh, it's so good to have her. I'm a big fan of Anne, and so are you, of course. And it's interesting. One of the ways that we prepare for these conversations, we often text like friends of the individual. And so, you know, a guest will come and our team prepares a little bit of a brief. We do some research, try to read the books or listen to the talks. But we also text some of their friends and say, hey, tell us about so-and-so. And so we texted you and we said like, hey, tell us about Anne Miranda. Like, I know her. I know some of the work she's doing. It's incredible work. And this was your response. You said, Anne is a visionary, dreamer, with exclamation marks. I'll try to do it with the right intonation. Anne is a visionary, because an exclamation mark there, dreamer, has such a high capacity for people and is super intentional. And I think that's a great way to describe her. And, you know, I knew the conversation would be strong, but I just was so thankful that we were able to go to such meaningful themes and the way she opened up about her life and her journey, not only in ministry, but her own journey of healing was just powerful. It was a really great conversation, really excited for people to be able to hear it. Totally. Well, a little bit about Anne for those of you who might not know her. She's currently the pastor of Women's Ministries at Village Church Canada. She co-founded a network called Leverage, which helps develop women in leadership roles. I personally have been impacted by this ministry. She's helped develop crime prevention programs for youth under the Attorney General's office in British Columbia. And she's currently on the board for Ally Global, which provides safety, education, and work opportunities to women and children affected by abuse or human trafficking. She's a leader of leaders, Jason. She's doing incredible things. Yeah, I love my conversation with Anne Miranda, and I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. So let's jump into this conversation right now. Well, hey, Anne Miranda, it is so good to be with you today. Thank you for making time. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jason, for having me on. This is so fun. Oh, you're such a gift. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Hey, for those that don't know you super well, can you just give us a bit of your story? You've got an amazing story coming into ministry, uh, but even take us further back, like, because I think that your upbringing uh, really informs some of the way that you lead and uh, care for people. So I just love to hear your story. Yeah. Uh, So currently, I'm the pastor of Women's Ministries at Village Church, which is located in Surrey, British Columbia. Village is a small little church just getting started, right? Yeah, it's a multi-site church (laughs) right now. It was totally a small little church that was getting started. It's such an exciting story of God's move on in this ministry and just the wave of the Holy Spirit. It's just so, it's been quite the journey. But I didn't start there, nor was that ever my aspiration. And Hmm. so I was born into a Lebanese family, but, um, but I'm born and raised in Canada. So I'm first generation Canadian. Both of Mm. my parents immigrated from Lebanon to Canada uh, separately, actually. They got married in Canada. Wow. Uh, And I believe that, and I was told many times growing up that Canada is the the land of promise, that they came Mm. searching for 
for new, for something new, for peace, for a future, for their family. And the story of many immigrants that come to this country, and it, they weren't coming as refugees, they were coming as immigrants to you know, start up life in a different way. There's tons of Lebanese outside of the country. There's millions and millions more outside of the country than in the country. So, and I'm learning about my own heritage too, being a first hmm. uh, generation Canadian and how that bridges uh, cultures. Uh, but that being said, it wasn't an, an, I don't think, traditional home that I was raised in, in many ways. My, although some, some folks may think, like, you know, the Middle Eastern culture is very patriarchal, my dad was not like that, nor were my mm. grandparents. Like, they were very much, you can do whatever you put your mind to, you dream, education was important. And so that was my path, school, school, and way more school. So yeah. I went to um, university, got my degrees in education and Spanish and English and was working actually from a very young age with the Ministry of Attorney General's office and got involved in social justice at super, super young. Like my teenage years were just saturated with all mm. these events and um, social justice kind of uh, um, connections with our government. And specifically around the area of crime prevention. Our unit shared um, office space with uh, a lot of young adults that were trying to make a difference in lives of youth, as well as the police and this department, which now is not called the prostitution unit, but something similar to a gang unit that was very focused on anti-trafficking mm. and rescuing kids in Canada. And so I was exposed to all the stuff. I'm still, you know, I've basically grew up in a traditional um, Christian home, but not really knowing Jesus, just knowing about Jesus yeah. uh, and not having a real relationship with him. Just It's just very incredibly traditional. Although one thing they knew very, very young was that someone had to die for me to have access to the name of Jesus. Someone mm. was martyred along the way for me to know the name of Jesus. Hmm. Then that seed was planted very early on. But wow. Other than that, I kind of sifted through life and did a lot of things in my own strength <laughs> and hmm. uh, got to a point where um, as I was working for government for many, many years, I had a deep passion for youth and knowing that if we could change a young generation, and although I was a youth myself, I was like, hey, if I can speak into my own generation and make some kind of impact, then I think the future would be brighter. Wow. Uh, and so then I ended up going into education and teaching high school for some years before before coming into Village Church and, and into ministry. Wow. So that's a little bit about kind of my career path, I guess. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. I, I hope we have a chance to go back to there's so many points in that that I wanted to ask about. But well, I'd like to hear more of your story first, then hopefully we can go back to some of those points. What What kind of catalyzed your faith coming alive? Yeah, so I... I guess by all the stuff that I just shared, I had a high, high um, standard for myself to achieve. Hmm. I'm a three on Enneagram. I find that out later in life, but I might. Can, can I, I can I say a confession? Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't know the Enneagrams, but what <laughs> I do is people go, I'm a four. I'm like, oh man, totally, hey? <laughs> totally. And totally. so I just... um. And or someone's like, man, okay. it's like, and I'm, and people say things like, I'm eight, but I'm married to a three. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, how do you do it? <laughs> but I don't actually we know what it means. We put these labels on ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's such a, f a five of me to do. <laughs> okay. 
the truth is that no matter what, which one of those tests I'll end up taking, <laughs> achieving is going to be yeah. one of the high points there. Setting Aww. goals, strategizing, going for it, that kind of thing. Christian or not Christian, like that's my life. Yeah. Uh, so I think there was a, a burden that you put, I put on myself to achieve that mm. was that's very very real uh but all of that jason was um was really a mask because mm. i didn't want to show any imperfection i didn't want to show failure uh we can pull back the the veil and into my psychology as eldest child and first generation canadian we can put all of that but a deep root of all of this is that i was abused as a child mm. and so coming into that conversation, I just, I wanted to just pretend it never happened. Hmm. And so by pretending it never happened, that meant that I was going to do other things like find my voice that I couldn't have for myself. I, I couldn't find that for myself. Um, during that situation, I would want to find a, my, be a voice for the voiceless. So all of my, the social justice drive, all of my passion for youth and for kids, came out of that my pain mm. and wow. at the, all of that purpose of like I wanted to find meaning for myself was was really rooted in that experience and I didn't find healing until this is my come to Jesus moment I was 19 years old and found myself at an altar call good old altar calls come on oh, oh, on my knees crying and I remember the pastor's shoes and I was and he had there's other people that were there kneeling down and I remember his shoes and my tears dripped on his black shiny shoes. Crazy. And I remember that scene because I went, oh my goodness, my tears are on his shoes. And I'm like, I can't believe this is happening because I all of a sudden in the natural, the supernatural collided and interrupted mm. my life. And the whispers of Christ through the spirit was like, and you don't have to do this life alone. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to keep achieving. You can just rest in me. I got something for you. You can't even imagine what I have for you. And there was this 19-year-old kid going to church by myself for two mm. years. How did you just, find yourself at church that was given an alt call? Like, what, what got you in the door? Uh, yeah, another young adult actually invited me to go. And the deal with this person was like, hey, you know what? After so much pestering, probably they were fasting and praying and I don't know what else behind the scenes, but I mean like so much pestering and pursuing that I finally said, listen, I'll go with you to church on one condition. You never talk to me again. Never talk to me really? about it again. Yeah. Wow. I never want to talk to you again. Never want to talk about this again. I'll go once I'll go here and whatever. I go to so many other things. Anyways, I've been to temples. I've been to mosques. I've been to whatever I'll go. No problem. And so I remember entering in and going, is this like a club or is this a church? Because the music was electric. It was magnetic. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I didn't know the words. I didn't know this is worship. I didn't know none of that. I was like, all right, let's go. And there I found myself just soaking in the words that were piercing. They were piercing. They were wow. reading my mail. I totally thought this person had told that pastor all my stuff. But there it was at the very end. It was like, listen, Jesus is talking to you. And if you know that he is, then come up to the front. Ah, I don't want to do that. Uh, but now I'm the one who's doing the altar calls. <laughs> so it's like, yes. Um, yeah. But in that moment, I it was a complete detour for my mm -hmm. life. 
and a complete surrender, knowing that I needed to do this life with him, with God, not on my own speeding through this highway of life. Wow. You know, it was in the detour. I always say it's in the detour that I found my deepest, greatest treasure. Hmm. And what was the journey after coming to know Jesus in that way of working through some of that trauma, some of those past experiences and now having a partner in the Lord in it, but doing that work, what's that journey been over the years since you were 19? Yeah. So I think, uh, this part of my story, I actually love, love talking about because there has been so much healing. Mm-hmm. And I love speaking hope into other people's lives going like, look, this is not, it's not my primary platform, but I've experienced the hope and healing of Christ so deeply. Um, and I would say the first piece actually for me was looking myself in the mirror and saying like, literally, like, I'm not just saying that figuratively, literally saying, this is what happened to me. I, wow. I had to confess to myself that this was real. And then invite Christ to heal my heart and heal my pain. I stumbled across Isaiah 61. And I say stumbled because as a new Christian, I didn't have a method or a way of studying. I didn't know. I was just looking at the text as an academic. And as I'm reading through, I, I stumble on Isaiah 61. And he says, I will trade, like trade me, give me your shame. And I'll give you a double portion of honor. Give me your sorrow, your mourning, and I'll I'll exchange beauty for ashes. I'll give you joy. I'll oh my goodness, it was revolutionary. I was like, mm. this is for me. This is for me. This is right now. Um, in that moment, there was a trade. There was an exchange, and he literally infused wow. joy and honor. And I think as I um, kind of matured in my faith. I would say my husband has been a big, huge part of the healing journey. Just going like, Mm. I remember confessing then to him saying, this is what's happened in my lifetime. And he went, okay, all right. You know, let's pray through this. You know, how are you doing? And just even an embrace. And Mm. so where there was pain in, and actually we talk about this a lot now that I do a lot of work with them, uh, anti-trafficking and rescuing kids that the pain of touch in the past is healed by healthy, safe uh, touch in now in the present. And so it's this beautiful healing that happened. I think that was another element. And the third, I would say is actually counseling, Hmm. but I didn't go to counseling um, until I was in my thirties. I didn't Hmm. even think that that was an issue. That was a thing. Um, there's some traditions in churches that just go, okay, get over it, you know, suck it up. It's just like, let's just keep going. The Lord heals. Let's go. And I'm like, he heal. he's healing. He's healing. Mm. And I see it like a scar. And every time I look at it, I I remember. And, but I don't, I don't feel the same pain, but I remember. So I, I would encourage folks like not to forget. You don't forget. You don't ever forget. If somebody's telling you that it's a lie, uh, you don't forget the pain. You don't forget the experience, but you don't feel the same pain. There Mm. is an absolute healing. And for me now, that's actually a a huge part of what I do is um, invest time in anti-trafficking movements that are happening specifically with Ally Global locally here. And we do some incredible work in Southeast Asia. So again, that pain fueling purpose in my personal life. I love the work of Ally Global. And um, 
you're a board member with them and part of the team. And it's an, it's a younger organization doing incredible work. And I just can't commend it more highly. Um, building safe homes in Southeast Asia and then championing the cause here. For pastors and leaders listening, what's something that, what might you say to them to, so I'll just speak for myself. I don't, I don't have the same story as you. Um, but how can I learn to best serve those in my congregation, on my staff, my team that have experienced that kind of abuse? How, what, what can you say to me about how I can better talk about it, care for it, serve and support those who have experienced that? Yeah. So actually, that was one of the things that I learned when I did come to Village Church was in a conversation as I was sharing my, my testimony, my story with my leadership. Um, and that was the very first question that I received was, hey, you know, have you received any kind of counseling? We want to care for you. What? I'm okay. I'm fine. Mm. They're like, no, actually, we're going to we're gonna actually say that it's mandatory for you to go to counseling. Did that, did that feel like, how did that feel, was that, like, what? That, that conversation? <laughs> Uncomfortable. Because yeah. I'm like, what are you? So that was the first, my first initial gut was like, I don't need this. I don't need, I'm like, okay, I've, I've overcome in the name of Jesus. Right. And I, that was my posture and I had, and what, what my leadership was saying is I actually, we want to actually care for you so deeply. We want to actually come alongside you so that you have complete freedom and can speak out of a place of authority, especially because I'm ministering to women. And this is the story. I think the numbers are outrageous, Jason, of women that have experienced abuse. That's like, uh, I don't even like throwing out numbers, but it's outrageous. And those are probably numbers of people that have um, reported it. And then there's all these people that haven't, like myself. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. How, how did then the leadership come alongside me and make sure and check in and make sure I'm healthy and okay? And so much of even healing comes from telling your story. Hmm. And so when it was appropriate, telling the story um, is, is a blessing to so many as well. And, and, just, and actually just embracing the fact that the Lord really, he did do a great work in my life. Hmm. He did do that deep exchange. And that's completely supernatural. So I think with leaders, um, as you're caring for the people that have this story, um, it's just, it's so much Jesus. Like when they brought the woman who was, I know it was her, it may have been her choice, the woman who was caught in adultery, but it's still a situation of abuse. And they kind of threw her at his feet. Mm -hmm. And certainly it is like, you know, it's just this so much injustice in that story. Absolutely. Uh, like there was no fair, there's no fair trial there. She, she was muted of her voice. It was absolutely um, it, abuse of power. And it's all her. It was all her. Like, where do you go? Like, it's all her. So, and, and that scene is so the heart, his heart there, uh, the heart of Jesus is the heart that we need to embrace as leaders. We're so tender, not mm. even looking up. Like I, I, as I play out the narrative and he's like writing in the sand, just going, cast the first stone. You have not sinned, cast the first stone. And he just looks at her with such this, when he does look up, it's this, I love you. It's you, you're not damaged goods. Mm. You have, you're, you're a leader. Your life will be transformed. 
and I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. It's mm-hmm. healing. That's what mm-hmm. I mean. It's that, that healing rather than uh, condemning. And so mm-hmm. I, th- and I think as leaders, we just embrace that heart of Christ. And we speak those words of life because our words have the power of life or death. And when we speak those words of life over somebody, it is super empowering. Wow. Um, and I think uh, today, I couldn't be serving the way that I'm serving today if my leadership didn't come around alongside me. And just go, and we're here for you. We love you. We see the potential in you. You are not the end, like it's not your story, but there's so much more that God is playing out here. And so Mm -hmm. we're just going to come alongside you to make sure you're healthy. I think that's also translated into the way that I pour into my uh, volunteer base. Because I have a huge, huge um, volunteers, lots of volunteers across this multi-site church that are serving the Lord in various ways. And so I think my role has become, let me like equip the saints, God. That's what it's in Ephesians, this, this equipping piece of me where I can lean into conversations with people and really care about the person and not the to-do list hmm. and just go, Hey, what are yours? What's your story? But how do you what do that when st- we have so much to get done, Anne? <laughs> oh, I really hope my my sarcasm came through and people are listening (laughs) audio only. Can you imagine if they're just like, whoa, Jay, I think you're missing the point in ministry there. But talk to me about that. I think that's the tension, right? Because oftentimes we have these volunteers because we're trying to pull off the thing, but then miss the fact that our primary discipleship is happening in the context of that relationship. And I know that's a huge value for you. So just take me into some of the values that you lead um, your, the ministry to volunteers with. I think I think relationship is huge for me because I realized very early on in my um, coming to Jesus moments that I am part of the family of Christ. He's my father, therefore I have this massive family. Oh man, is this this? We can unpack this for hours. So because I'm adopted and I'm part of his family, everybody I'm encountering is a son or daughter of Christ. Who am I to have that person just fulfill my to-do list? That's, mm. a, that's a daughter of Christ. It's a son of God. I, I really um, have a, a conviction about entering into a relationship with people. And even my staff, they know this. I'm highly relational because I want to actually look into the person's eyeballs now on Zoom and go, what's going on? What's God laying on your heart? What's your story? And what are what are your gifts? What are your hard skills, abilities? And where where does this where's God leading you? Hmm. If that happens to, you know, be somehow there's a connection within the to-do list, that's great. But at the end of the day, it's like directing that person to fulfill what God has destined for them at, the, hmm. at you know, in their own personal life. Not my agenda. And so I always think about that adoption piece because I'm like, this is, we're part of a family. I don't, I have two brothers. I don't have sisters, but when they come through, you know, my, my place, I'm like, Hey, I need you to do this and this and this and this and this, and this is my to-do list. And I don't care about you. It's like, no, Hey, how you doing? You know, like I really, um, yeah, I really embrace the concept of family. Hmm. Hmm. One of the other things that I know you take seriously is like trying to, and you mentioned this already, but I want to just kind of, uh, unpack it a bit more, discovering volunteers' gifts, their passions, and letting that actually inform the ministry you do. And you guys are at uh, 
a big church, there's real outcomes, there's systems and structures in place. Uh, I want just to hear a bit more about how you live into that tension, but what that looks like for you to discover people's gifts, their passions, their calling, mm-hmm. and actually let that inform the ministry you're shaping. Yeah, I think this is very interesting because there are so many needs and there are so many, especially when we were gathering in person, the needs look a little bit different. Um, And I think that now I I almost want to talk about this in two parts, the online now in this time that we are, we're living and then the, you know, the gathering, you know, because I think that to be relevant, um, the method is the same but the outcome's a little bit different. So let me just lean into this conversation a little bit with you, Jason. So before I would be, same thing, I'd be listening to a person's story. Uh, maybe I'd give them some kind of little, you know, quiz of like, what are you, what are you interested in? What are your, you know, passions? Just like really l- listening uh, mm. is probably the first step. But then the second piece is, where do you see yourself fitting here within this ministry? Can you... Mm. See where you're investing your gifts and talents. Is there something within this church body or the big C church body? Is there something, a passion or a desire that cannot be fulfilled within this small C church, you know, body? Uh, But is there something that is, you know, bigger? So Mm. trying to discern that, that doesn't come from just one time of Mm. hanging out and like having a coffee and listening to it's, it's really prayerful and putting the onus on that person, not just trying to be kind of prophetic, figuring out magic magician as a pastor. I can't figure out people's lives. They got to figure out their own, like their own path mm. in, in some way and what they're passionate about and, and where, and being obedient to Christ. That is a, that's their own journey. So sometimes it's a, a fit in some ways as we're discerning. Is it, is it within the church? Um, context now if it were in person an in-person gathering like pre-covid um we would be having some team meetings we would be having you know a lot more maybe interactions in my case there's lead pastors so that they would be plugging into their sites but highly again relational what i'm finding now in this online kind of season is that people are rising up with their hard skill set and going, hmm. hey, I really know Instagram. Can I serve in some capacity? Hey, I, I really know how to do whatever. Online courses. Can I serve in this capacity? Hard skills. Not, I can, I love serving coffee in the church lobby. It's so interesting for me to unpack the, the volunteer role within the church, the current church situation. Hmm. That's so interesting. I love, I love just the thought that jumped to my mind as you were sharing that too is, what a unique gift this season has for us to see people who might not typically be mobilized to be mobilized in their work. In a service, in-person driven environment, people who are musicians, uh, maybe speakers or communicators. I mean, there's tons of roles, ushers, tech, uh, small group coordinators, there's tons of different roles, but a whole new set of um, giftings that become uh, needed in this time. And what's exciting about that is there are people who it's like, I didn't necessarily have a I didn't have an outlet for these skills or for these interests. And now there is in this season. And um, obviously it's intimidating for leaders in this season, potentially trying to lead out of their depths. But what that allows us to do is to be excited to like actually be dependent on people with skills that we don't have. <laughs> we don't understand this space. Yeah. So we need you to help. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And I love, I love that actually releasing, uh, I see that like releasing the person to thrive and then just enjoying watching what's going on and going like, wow, this is great. I'll direct the vision. I'll have, I always have my teams are like, there's so many young adults on my, on the teams that I lead and they're the experts. I'm directing the vision. I'm going like, hey, this is we're going in this direction, guys. But the, all of them have the skill set skill set I don't have, hmm. and it's not um, it's not intimidating. It's not scary for me to go. Oh, whoa! Like they they really do know this thing's going to fall apart if I release them or so. I don't know. But the, our thoughts can go in all different directions. For me, it's such a joy hmm. to see them thriving. In and being able to invest their gifts within the church, because if not, it's they're gonna they're gonna bleed out into the marketplace. I would rather see an influx like like that's what happened in my life coming from the marketplace into the church. Hmm. So many people don't find their fit in the church, and then end up investing all their time and energy and gifts and all that beauty God has created them with outside of the church body. Hmm. But we need them in the church. What would be your top tips, 10 top tips, if you got them, for working with uh, young adults, volunteers? Because, oh. like, how do you make them show up on time, uh, consistently, over time? Apparently, millennials are flaky. I'm a millennial, so I'm allowed to say this. But uh, I've, I've experienced great joy working with young adults. It seems like you have as well. Yeah. What are some tips that you can give uh, for cultivating a volunteer base of young adults? So all of those stereotypes with millennials, although there's always, they'll say like, there's a little bit of truth to every stereotype. I haven't experienced that. Hmm. I've experienced set the bar high and explain it. Don't just set it and don't say it like unspoken expectations, but set the bar high. The, this is what we're doing. And this is why, because mm. that is the one common thread that I have noticed within mo- the millennial generation is tell me why, give me a good reason. And I am going to show up and I'm wow. going to give all of me. I'm going to give you all of me into this, all of my creativity, all of my knowledge. I'm going to give it all because you value me. So tip one is make sure that why is super clear because they're going to ask you if it's not and they're not afraid to ask. Uh, And the second piece is tell them why they're valuable to this team. Hmm. I think that is like, this is, I don't just have a team for the sake of having a team. Everyone on the team has a role. They know their lane and they know that their lane is really important and that it impacts the rest of the team. So they actually have, even though they're volunteers, they have a, a role description with a title and people Mm. might think that's, I don't know, cheesy or crazy, but it makes it very clear. This is your responsibilities. This is why you're on the team because you have these skill sets and we need you on this team. And Mm. so then it also becomes very easy when there is a season of like transition and, and that person has kind of, they're ending off and they're transitioning out to something else. It's easy then to fill kind of that role because we know our expectations and mm. other, you know, people on the team will pick up the slack and keep on going. Cause you've, we've fostered, Hey, we're in this together. We actually belong here together. So mm. I think that that would be my first, my two tips. I love it. I asked for 10, but two, you said, you, <laughs> just you 10, condense, we're gonna be no, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, earlier in the, when we were chatting before we started recording, you mentioned sort of this sense of like, I don't know, 
uh, it's like a life calling, but like you want to be a conversationalist. And you went on to say like, like actually to, with intention, create safe places for people to have tough conversations. And we definitely live in a moment where there are very intense conversations to be had. And I think it's appropriate that some people might argue that the church hasn't always been the safest place for those tough conversations. And I think because we live in a very like politicized moment, uh, conversations are more difficult than ever. So the task of creating safe places for those conversations are more challenging. And I think we're in like a transition zone moment in the church where mo- different generations are working together and that working together well is so essential. So again, more need for good conversations. Can you just speak to what that value is for you and then what that actually looks yeah. like to live into? Yeah, so good. Oh my goodness. I think, yeah, we are living in a generation where everything seems so tense. Whether you talk to a mama and her, you know, choice of diaper that she's going to put on her baby's bottom, it's like this intense conversation. And then you talk about when political who you're voting for, it's an intense conversation. And then you talk about, you know, leadership in the church, and it's like, wow, does ever like tense? Like, let's just breathe and have conversations. And so I think I I've been called for sure to be in. Um, almost like a mediator in various conversations to bring Mm. both sides of the party and go, okay, what are we actually talking about here? Can we have, can we actually enter in a conversation with love? Can we love each other through this conversation, even if we're sitting on opposite extremes and can we have multiple conversations? I I think about even my, with my kids, like if I'm going to have a conversation with my kids, if I come up harsh out of the gate, it's gonna not gonna end well. Or with my spouse, I think there's some studies that have been done with you, like the first three minutes of like how you're entering in the conversation. If it's hard, it's gonna end harsh. That same thing. We're all so we're all so relational. So when we're entering into these conversations that are hard topics to talk about, the first three minutes matter. The first three mm. minutes are like, okay, am I gonna set up a foundation of love? Am I setting up a foundation of safety? And even though sometimes we try to use humor to ease kind of the situation and to make ourselves feel good. Sometimes that's the worst thing to do because it, it's actually belittling a situation that is mm. or a conversation. So, yeah, I think that if we're entering into conversations with a lot of love and patience and grace for the other, um, it, it guards our mind against judgment and against mm. even putting thoughts about the other before we even start a conversation. So, mm. I don't know if that's helpful, Jason, but I've been in so many uh, difficult conversations that can actually be overcome. The word of God is true. It never comes by void. He says love overcomes. And it Mm. does. Mm. It does because it changes our heart heart posture. It shifts the heart. And it, it allows us perspective to go, hey, I actually can see this person the way that God sees them. I can actually listen. I can see. I can. I can put all my, um, mm. all my thoughts kind of to the side, just hold them captive for a minute. Let me hear what this person is trying to say. Uh, give mm. them the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Cause you don't know how difficult it is for another person to, to, to open their mouth even and say the words that they need to say. Hmm. Why do you think this is so critical for the mission of the church today? If the church isn't the place where we can have safe conversations, like we're we're done. 
game over. Like, let's stop right here. The church has to be the place of peace. The, even the Lord's, when you're coming in and you're going out, say, peace be with you. Show them in John 13, it says, the way that we love each other, by the way that we love each other, this world will come to know him. So if we could actually love each other as, again, I'm going to go back to that family piece, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can demonstrate that love, we will change church, we will change culture, we will change community, we will be a different people, we will be noticed Mm. on this planet, because we'll just radiate Christ, Mm. we'll bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, if Mm. we can love each other well, and have those conversations, that's what he did. Over and over and over again, like Jesus is the master conversationalist sitting at the table, mm-hmm. talking Pulling with people, people in, mm-hmm. right? Gathering them. Come here. Let me, let's talk here. Hmm. Let's, let's. I think one of the, one of the pushbacks or critiques would be like, oh, by conversation to me, not having a voice, not having an opinion, not standing up for truth. And I just want to like no. jump in and prevent that counter argument. I know because I've seen your ministry and your heart, like your purse of the word, you're, you're like, hey, there's a space for proclaiming the truth and articulating by what I've seen in your ministry, I think what this value articulates is, but to see that find root in people's hearts, to see that actually change their mind and their heart, they have to bring them into a space where they can explore it for themselves, wrestle with those questions, especially today when we're talking about big things, like whether it's race or uh, female empowerment in the church or whatever it might be, like it's not just one monologue that's going to do the trick. It's bringing people into a space where they feel heard, their hurts, their hangups, their questions, all of that. And the goal is still life change. The goal is that people would be changed more and more into the image of Christ. Um, but part of that journey has to be those safe places. Yeah, we don't need to compromise truth. Jesus never compromised truth. I will not compromise truth in our, in our ministry. It's like staying true to that. Even in those conversations, sometimes your heart breaks because the other, the other person is not um, staying true to God's word. Hmm. But yet... Does it mean I can't have the conversation with them? Does it mean I have to be harsh and then not show love? Mm. No. It means that my heart breaks for those that will steer away from the truth. Mm. But I can, I definitely want to be able to foster an atmosphere where I can have conversations, even the hard ones. And I've had so many of those within even leadership mm. and going, yeah, what is, you know, the female empowerment? What is that? What does that look like? That's a hard conversation to have, but I'm not going to come in angry like what the world says to do as a female. I'm going to come in with love and grace. and Let me listen to what you're actually talking about here. Let me hear you out for a minute. And can you hear me out? And I think we can get to a place better together. I think we can get to a place where, again, we're, we're actually living out God's word, not compromising his truth at all. Hmm. earlier when you were sharing your story and just and thank you so much for all you've shared and um you didn't have to let us into different parts of your story but you did and i'm grateful that for your your authenticity and your willingness to share your story so generously earlier in the story you talked about your work before coming into ministry um with the attorney general's office and in education and i just want to just chat a bit more about that because can you just give us a bit of a picture of you know, what, what is the battle that you were fighting? And, um, and cause I know it's still alive today in terms of like, whether it's youth and gang violence or youth and sex trafficking, just help us see a little bit of a state of the affairs. Cause I think to just to show my cards, it would just be so exciting if the church 
continue to be the champion of young people at risk in our country. And so I just love for you to just to talk a bit about that journey, what you learned, what you saw and how that's maybe even shaping your ministry still today. Yeah. Well, I saw a lot of harsh things, a lot of harsh things. Uh, and I still do uh, within our country. So I can talk about global issues all day long. And we can think of that the gang issue and the violence and the prostitution and trafficking, all of that happens somewhere else. But if I can, for a second, lean into Canada as from coast to coast, uh, to coast, the three coasts, we have a crisis with youth that has, I think there's nothing new under the sun. If we don't um, reach out and again, show um, love and show um, the worth of a young kid, someone believed in me when I was 13, took mm. me under their wing and said, Hey, I see this in you. Let me develop you. What? I was like this. I had never had a sleepover, Jason, because my parents were so strict with sleepovers that this lady who worked for government said, I'm going to take your daughter all around the province. And my dad literally said, if anything happens to her, you are. <laughs> like, he was like so upset. I was like, okay, I'm going to what's happening right now. Someone believed in me. She took me under, she developed me as mm. a leader. She So we have these kids that are at risk all across the country from coast to coast to coast. Hmm. What do we do as the church? I think we have a responsibility to go into the places that seem uncomfortable and, ju and just be Jesus there, hmm. be, be his hands, be his feet, feed, it says feed the, you know, Feed those that are hungry, clothe those that are naked, uh, provide for the orphan and the, and the widow. Show up as the church in those places. Let your mayor know that you exist as a Christian. Let them mm -hmm. know that the schools in your community, let them know that you are there. Uh, my, my, my great friend, um, Loretta Hibbs at Dream Center, you should have her on one day, talks about how you adopt a school. Hmm. And she has this ministry and we've been partnering with her too. We go into these at risk, you know, really, really at risk communities and provide meals or activities, whatever that looks like at, in the adoption process of the school and just show up. Yeah. And so you see these educators that pour out their life for kids uh, just bawling, crying because they're like, you see us. Hmm. And through that, they're realizing God sees us. Mm. He hears us. He loves us. Wow. The church is showing up. We've had people go like, I can't even believe that you're a Christian. I've never seen Christians show this kind of love um, and show again, commitment. So this is the other part I would say with working with youth, you can't just go there to make yourself feel good. You have to show up and be committed and actually persistent and consistent Hmm. So I, my classroom when I was teaching was like the classroom to, I didn't care what a kid went through or whatever. They knew that that was a safe space for them. So, but I would always show up. Hmm. And so there's this piece of with young people, um, no matter if they have a healthy family life, no matter if they, whatever that looks like, it's just a, it's a tough stage. It's a developmental yeah. stage. We've all remember yeah. that in our insecurities in our mind. So I, even I would say the, the minimal part is, Find a young person that you can mentor, have that young person kind of be your shadow, 
Mm. welcome them into your family. These are hard things. It's not easy. Yeah. I'm saying them, but they're not easy to actually live out. And yeah. then the big picture is show up as an actual church body mm. in these difficult situations. So one of the things that we're um, working on right now is just connecting people in Canada that do the work of anti-trafficking and just finding out who's out there. What are you yeah. doing in this country and not be so siloed? Mm. Um, yeah. There's so much I can talk on this topic because it's it's rampant and it's outrageous in our own country. I think um, I think the primary audience for this podcast is um, senior church leaders and their teams. I know a lot of youth pastors listening in, but there are youth ministry podcasts out there. And um, my concern is if just the youth ministry podcasts talk about the work that needs to be done with young people, we're not going to make it the den. This needs the whole church. Yeah. Um, it's not a, this is not, I stink and love youth pastors and there's some incredibly gifted youth pastor across Canada, but it, but just youth pastors alone can't solve this crisis. We need parents to take their right. job seriously, to love their, their, to disciple and love their kids and then make room at their dinner table for at least one more child. Like just, do you have room at your table for at least one more? Um, and then for churches, for senior pastors, executive pastors, women's pastors, whatever the role, to be like, oh, I didn't, it's not the youth pastor's responsibility, it's the whole church's responsibility to, to think about this because um, it's just, it's such, it's such an uh, important part of the health of our country. We long for a better future for Canada and our future's in the hands of the next generation. And like you said, a loving adult can make such a difference in a child or a teenager's lives. And uh, I just, I just thank, so thankful for you and that heart and the work you've done. One thing that you said that stood out to me and was don't do it if you want to feel good. I want to assure everyone, if you start doing youth work, most of the time it might not feel good. The payoff <laughs> is so long-term. Like, like, cause, cause, cause you said it's the developmental age. I mean, they're, they're just going through so much and it doesn't, yeah. it's not just like three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's like 10 steps forward, 50 steps backwards. I can't oh. find them. And then, and then they're on fire again for Jesus. You're like, their life's been changed. And then it's like, whew, they get a relationship and they're on the other side. It's like, it is the most emo. And then they're not like always kind in return. And so if you're insecure and you're trying to work with teenagers, good luck. Like we have to like leave it all of our insecurities all and just say, hey, like my agenda is just to be a faithful presence in their lives. I can't control the outcomes here. And that's so hard for us as humans because we want just good ROI on everything. And it's, I think youth ministry is one of the, and kids ministry is one of the most kingdom propositions ever because you have to submit all the outcomes to the Lord. And the ROI is, is rarely instant, but I got to share this story. I shouldn't talk so much, but I got to share this story. <laughs> it's good. It's I, 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 I heard this through my dad. So my dad did Young Life for a long time. He's not yeah. doing Young Life anymore. He led and he had a, a volunteer leader. So a young adult guy um, who took a group of teenagers to a Young Life camp. So this is over 20 years ago, okay? And his experience was brutal. Like the kids almost bullied the leader in the cabin. You know what I mean? Like it was not like, like these kids, they were running show. I think it was eight teenage boys. And I, I, I think none or maybe one or two from Christian homes, but primarily not from Christian families. Not that that necessarily makes the difference when it comes to no, how cabins totally behave. But, um, so for like well over a decade, um, he felt like it was like a failure. Like I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I didn't see these kids turn the corner 
And then 20 years later, two full decades later, one of the boys in this friend group, and I'm really hoping I'm telling the details of this story. So these are now adult men, not teenagers anymore, 20 years later. So in their 30s, early 40s maybe, um, one of them got sick. And um, for some reason, they, they reached out to this youth leader, this guy um, in that time of need, and what they discovered is that a couple of them later in life gave their life to the Lord, that those were the formative experience that week they had together at camp was a formative experience in their life, and it's still shaping their friend group now. And for 20 years, for two decades, this guy thought it was a failure. Yeah. And that deposit of that investment that felt like, and so I just think that's such a kingdom picture of like sometimes you, and then what if you didn't get the phone call and you left the rest of your life being like it was a waste of time, but it's not, it's not a waste. No, because sometimes we won't see the fruit of the seed that we planted. So we, there's something, it's, this is biblical, some water, some plant, you just, you just don't know who gets to see the fruit at the end, who gets that harvest at the end. This is a cool story because he actually had like closure to this, to the, the beginning of the story. But sometimes you don't get to hear that. And, and that's okay. That's okay. We got to trust that God is doing that good work. And even as these, these, I think about the young um, youth pastors, somehow in the church, it's very interesting coming out from the marketplace and having a different perspective. But we've had young adults leading youth ministry. And that's great if the young adult has somebody that's pouring into them. And sometimes we leave these young adults to, to just go and they feel like they're ill-equipped in some ways and solo. And so we need to be pouring into them as well. Like, I love how you even painted that picture of the parents and the pastors and not just like leaving them. Like, okay, that guy, you know, they're going to take care of it. But it's like, oh, no, we are going to take care of it because these people, I remember talking to one of our young women on staff and I said, if you could preach to, the, to an audience right now, I actually would ask you to preach to youth not our, you know, general women's, whatever, preach to the, because in 10 years, these guys who are going to be 20 years later, you know, they're going to be older. They're going to have families. They're going to have, and now these people you've invested in, my daughter is 10. Who's preaching into her in the next 10 years that she's going to be a young adult. Like we've got these short spans and all we're looking at sometimes as pastors or, you know, leadership, we're looking at Oh, that's just the kid. Oh, mm-hmm. that's just the kid. That's just like, you know, it's like, uh, almost like their life isn't worth it, but the, it is. That's the future of the church. And if these, if we have a crisis with our youth, we're losing the church. We want oh. them to be involved so much that they feel this is home and so much more challenging now in this online uh, situation. Mm-hmm. So they need to, we need to pick up the phone and call people. We need to be old school, show up at their doorstep with a, little coffee or something and just go, Hey, with our masks on and social distance and all of that, but go the extra mile so that these kids know that their place is in the church and that Mm. that they, they won't waver. And then obviously we impact our greater community, but so rich, Jason, so rich to invest in our, in our, in our family, in our family. Yeah. I think there's something about our church, um, rhythms or I'm talking about us in leadership in church and I don't want to ge- overly generalize but something in, in the mechanisms that cause us to think six months out or a year out and that's like long-term thinking 
Um, but mostly we're trying to think about really short-term outcomes. And I think one of the things that is a big shift that needs to happen, it is happening, I'm optimistic. And we're seeing this in culture, like in the culture wars, some of the most powerful cultural movements, we're thinking 20, 30, 40 years out, how they're gonna shape and change culture's thoughts around key issues. And we're seeing the fruit of things that were strategies that are formed in the 70s playing out today. What would that look like for us as church leaders to go, yeah, we have a short ter- short-term responsibilities. COVID hit, we got to pivot, we got to figure this out. Um, but to say, hey, how are we discipling and shaping and investing so that 30, 40 years from now, we've got a rich uh, fabric in the church in Canada and we've invested in uh, new leaders, young leaders that are creative and dynamic and reaching their own generation and beyond. And it's, it's a massive shift. It's an exhausting shift. Um, and I don't fully know how to do it. Like I'm here trying to lead a church in Vancouver. And so much of what we need to do is just to, that we be able to make it to next quarter, <laughs> to next year. Um, but I feel like I feel like maybe one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing is helping us to look our eyes further ahead and think decades from now. And that always will lead to investing deeply in children and youth. Yeah, I always think of what, what if in Vancouver or wherever, whatever city and region God has positioned you in and called you to, you actually looked to the neighbors, the other churches on the block and went, how do we collectively hmm. reach this young generation? Wow. Because that would not, then it wouldn't matter where the kids went to church. It wouldn't matter what community, as long as they go home. Like they come to to the home, yeah. to church, to the body of Christ. But collectively, we're going to be present in schools. We're going to be present in the community centers. We're going to be present at the skate park. We're going to be present together so that we actually strategize how we're going to reach this generation. If we can work collaboratively, we do it well in the marketplace. I could say that through government, we were doing that really well. We were collaborating mm. with the police, with the schools. We were collaborating with whoever had touch points with youth. Wow. The church, we compete. We're like, hey, they have to, that guy's got a thriving youth program. I got to outbeat him. I've got to do this. This girl, she can do this, that, the other. It's ridiculous coming out into the church without those ministry eyes for me, looking into it going, how are we being competitive with each other? We this is where there's this is this is the sin. This is this is the loss. Is that we forgetting that collectively we're family again? Mm-hmm. I think I didn't anticipate to talk so much about family. I think this is a big <laughs> concept right now for me. Going like what? This might be the piece that is missing. Mm-hmm. Is that loving again each other well so that we can love out? And what? Um- what caused you to make a pivot from the work you're doing into full-time ministry? Yeah, that was a very definite call because mm. any one of us and anyone, whoever is listening in, you could be, you could be working in the marketplace. You could be working in the corporate. I could have been doing that, Jason, and been very successful in the world's eyes, but there was a calling and I that got to a point in that calling, and I actually had like a physical, like an actual dream that was reinforcing this calling. And I went, Lord, if I'm going to invest my life uh, into something, can I not talk about Jesus? 
can I not like share you in the end day to day in everything that I do? Um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And there have been times even in the last seven years where I go, should I be, should I be able to be doing this? Should I be like actually going back into, am I, is my light brighter outside of the church? Um, and I, and I had wrestled with that. Uh, I wrestle with that some, some days, but I know that uh, there's a, a step of obedience and now there's a perseverance that's mm. like, okay, let's go team church. Let's go. Let's go mm. do this. Let's make a difference, a dent in darkness. And just knowing that this is what I'm called to do. Hmm. Can I ask how old you were when you switched from, uh, when you moved into full-time ministry? Yeah, I was 35 years old. I think the reason why I ask is because, um, and everyone listening is tired of hearing me say this, but we have a real crisis in the church of who will be the next wave of leaders. And so um, there's just a reality of like, for every individual retiring, there's just not a lot of leaders in the pipeline to lead the church. And so that there's a pipelining issue. How do we invest younger? But if we went and started investing deeply in the Bible colleges now, there's a, a real, we're still, there's still a pipeline issue. Like, um, I wonder if there are more Ann Mirandas out there who are in their mid thirties, who have learned a ton of skills that God's worked on their heart that he'll call into the church to help us lead into this next generation. I, Jason, that would be a delight to see in so many ways, because one, what I've noticed is I'd never had an aspiration to go to Bible college. I am an academic because I have, I've gone to obviously university, all that stuff. Don't tell but anyone, but I've, I've never been to Bible college. There you I go. Don't tell anyone. I, so, don't tell anyone. so, okay. You just told everybody. Okay. It's like, so, oh my gosh, so that's a great route. Well, let me tell you. But it's like not reality. Today's episode is actually sponsored by uh, Summit Pacific Bible. No, I'm just kidding. They're not sponsors, but they're a great Bible college. But it would just be good at the end if we jumped on with a sponsorship. Education is awesome. I want to do that. I've actually, we're actually through um, my awesome friend, Krista Penner. We're trying to create a cohort right now of women that could do the master's program. All this stuff. I love it. I think that there's value to it. However, it's not that I need to read all of these books to do life. Jesus didn't tell the Samaritan woman, hold on, you need to get your degree and you need to go to school with those Pharisees so that you can, you know, have the education that you need to preach my word. He, she's like, well, he transformed my life. I'm going to go tell this town and the whole town comes to know Jesus. It's more like the authenticity that our, it doesn't grow old that our culture, our world needs. Hmm. that there is actually power in the name of Jesus. And we hmm. share that with a broken world. All the schooling in the world. I have, I have students that I get to mentor. They're like stuck when it comes to real life ministry because it's not the textbook, hmm. right? And it's great. It is great. But there is a limit to, to actually how real is this? Hmm. Can we... You can read all you want about about love and prayer and spiritual disciplines, but if you never we never practice them, then mm. what's the point? I'm right? just preempting the email that I might get um, <laughs> after this conversation. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's me. I said it. Um, I think I think here's the thought that I'm. I think I hear you saying, and I think it's important. 
it's not actually downplaying the significant importance of robust theological training. I'm passionate about it. We yes. we do it with our staff. But what what I think, if we're going to take seriously the task in front of us to raise up leaders for the church, we need to create new pathways for people like Anne Miranda and others, where it's not like, hey, you need to quit your job, study for four years, and then maybe there's a job for you on the other side. It's like, hey, we can create pathways where people can enter into ministry. And then this is what you guys are doing with Immerse and other pathways, in your case with the Fellowship Baptist and partnership with the seminary, uh, and, and new creative ways where people can actually learn while they're on the job to enhance their robust theological underpinning, but they have these other cultivated gifts, and then vice versa. Like, And the same can be true on the other side of the equation, but I think that's, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. We think about people moving from maybe marketplace profession into church ministry, saying how can we create new and exciting uh, and bespoke pathways to build that robust theological training, pa- training in pastoral care and, and other skills in that area, but that allow people to actually make that pivot and even imagine that pivot. And what's exciting just to even share your story is people need to know that it happens. People in their mid-30s yeah. make a pivot and can find fruitful uh, a fr- fruitfulness in ministry. And you're doing that, Anne. You're at a great church, multi-site, leading a dynamic women's ministry at the same time, serving with Ally Global. It's just incredible. And I'm just such a fan of you and the work that God's doing through your life and thankful that he called you into the church space because we're all better for it. Thanks, Jason. It's so it's such an honor to serve like this and to really give, um, yeah, all time, energy, my creative ideas, all that into investing and in, into the into the church. And so mm. I'm excited to see what God is going to do through our generation. It's not over yet. Well, I loved our chat today. Thank you so much for all your time. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jason. Well, thank you for joining us, Anne. We loved having you on the podcast today. One thing I love from her interview, Anne talked a bit about collaborating and not competing as churches and leaders, and we feel that really reflects our heart here at CCLN. One thing we've recently launched to contribute towards that is a Facebook group. This group is a place for leaders in the church and in Christian ministries to have contextualized discussions, opportunities to share resources, and a place to connect with one another about the local church. If you search Canadian Church Leaders Network on Facebook or head to our show notes from this episode on the website, you can find everything there. All right, next week we have Phil Kniesel from Hope City Church in Edmonton being interviewed by Mark Clark. Hope City is an influential and dynamic multi-site church with a vision to reach 1% of Edmonton for Jesus, and we're so thrilled Phil's joining us for the show. Well, that's all for today. We hope you'll join us in the Facebook group or on Instagram to continue the conversation about the church here in Canada. See you guys soon.